This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. First, a word from one of our sponsors, Green Chef. What is Green Chef? Well, Green Chef is a meal kit company. They make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Now, as an emergency doc, a dad, a musician, and a podcaster, I don't always have time to go grocery shopping and prepare healthy meals, and I just want a healthy meal that I can throw together quickly and put in my work bag so that I can refuel at work or enjoy at home. Green Chef makes it so easy and saves so much time. They offer a wide range of recipes to suit whatever food preferences you might have. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with any meal that works for you, not the other way around. You can get everything you need at Green Market, their one-stop shop for yummy, wholesome, farm-fresh, quick breakfasts, brunch kits, lunches, and more that you can easily add on your weekly order. Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. They offset 100% of their carbon footprint as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. Make healthy time-saving meal choices this spring and try out Green Chef. Go to greenchef.com slash emcases60 and use the code emcases60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Again, go to greenchef.com slash emcases60 and use code emcases60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Aortic dissection is such a difficult diagnosis to make, and we spend a lot of time focusing on making that diagnosis, picking up these subtle presentations of aortic dissection. What we don't spend as much time on is how to manage that dissection once you pick it up. Ultimately, these patients are going to need surgical assessment. They're going to need an ICU. But what should we be doing in the emergency department when we see those patients? Our focus is on anti-impulse therapy. That means lowering both the heart rate and the blood pressure. And the reason we're doing that is because that wave of blood coming out of the heart is going to be striking that dissection flap. And so we want to reduce the number of times it's striking the dissection flap, reducing the heart rate, and the strength at which it is striking the dissection flap, so reducing the blood pressure. Most of the time we talk about the MAP, here we're really focused on the systolic blood pressure. The approach to anti-impulse therapy is really three-pronged. The first one is the one that is often overlooked, which is providing adequate analgesia. And actually, this should happen before you make the diagnosis of dissection. You see that patient in front of you with intense pain. Perhaps they also have that tearing pain going to the back, although we know that's not the common presentation. But often these patients do have severe pain. Until we reduce or manage that pain, we're not going to be able to get the heart rate and blood pressure down. A lot of the heart rate and blood pressure changes we see in front of us are going to be driven by the patient's endogenous catecholamines. The pain that they're having is ramping up those catecholamines. And so until we lyse that catecholamine response, we're not really going to be able to fix the blood pressure and heart rate. So we want to start by giving them analgesia. We can do this before we get imaging. And my go-to drug here is fentanyl, usually around one mic per kilo. And then I'm going to redose it every 15 to 20 minutes. Adequate analgesia can markedly reduce both the heart rate and the blood pressure. So go ahead and initiate that management before you're going for your definitive imaging. As we are managing the patient's pain, we can start our heart rate control. The goal heart rate here is somewhere in the 50 to 60 range. 
And the ideal agent here is going to be a beta blocker. Beta blocker of choice is Esmolol if you have it. Esmolol selectively antagonizes the beta-1 adrenergic receptors, so it's really going to be helpful in getting that heart rate down. The dosing of Esmolol is to start with a bolus of 500 to 1,000 mics per kilo, and then you want to follow that with an infusion of 50 mics per kilo per minute. Every 5 to 10 minutes, we're going to check that heart rate and consider titrating up our Esmolol drip. The way we do this is we can increase by 50 mics per kilo per minute, but we also have to redose the bolus. So we're going to rebolus 500 to 1,000 mics per kilo, and then we're going to increase our drip by 50 mics per kilo per minute. After we have provided adequate analgesia, we've started that heart rate control, make sure to recheck the blood pressure because that might have been enough to bring the blood pressure down to the level that you want, but in many patients it won't be enough. And so we're going to have to then start specific blood pressure management. Our goal blood pressure here is a little bit variable depending on your hospital, on your intensivist, on your cardiothoracic surgeons. Generally, we're targeting a systolic between 90 and 100 millimeters of mercury. The ideal agents to reach for here are either clavidipine or nicardipine because they are pure arterial vasodilators. If you're using nicardipine, I would load this five milligrams over about five minutes and start your drip at five milligrams per hour. At about 10 minutes, recheck your systolic blood pressure. If it hasn't reached your goal, you wanna redose that five milligram load and increase your drip by 2.5 milligrams per hour. If you happen to have clavidipine, fantastic, because this is an easily titrated agent. It's pretty rapid on. You can start at one to two milligrams per hour as an IV drip and then titrate by doubling that rate every 90 seconds. If you happen to work in one of the many places that doesn't have either nicardipine or clavidipine, I've got a couple of other options for you. Option one is to use labetalol. You can use the labetalol in tandem with esmolol, or you can use labetalol alone as that will have both heart rate and blood pressure effects. Labetalol dosing is typically 10 milligrams as an IV push over about two minutes, and then start your drip at two milligrams per minute with reassessments every five minutes to make sure that you are reaching your goal. If you don't reach your goal, titrate up by somewhere between 0.5 and one milligram. Option two is to continue to use Esmolol for your heart rate and then add nitroprusside for your blood pressure management. Problems with nitroprusside is that it can cause reflex tachycardia. It's very hard to titrate. Honestly, I haven't used the drug since somewhere around 2006, so it's not a drug I'm very familiar with, not a drug I'm reaching for because of those issues. Both of those options, either the labetalol or the Esmolol plus nitroprusside, have a lot of issues, much more difficult to titrate much more difficult to manage the patient's heart rate and blood pressure. And so if you don't have nicardipine or clavidipine, you should really be asking your hospital for these agents, not just for the patient with dissection, but for all of the patients where you are acutely managing blood pressure. Nicardipine is a great agent for subarachnoid hemorrhages, for traumatic intracerebral hemorrhages, for hypertensive encephalopathy, and so on. Let's quickly recap that three-pronged approach to pharmacotherapy in dissection. Number one is to deal with analgesia. You can start this before you get the diagnosis. These patients tend to be in a lot of pain. Give them fentanyl, stop that catecholamine surge. That's gonna to help to lower the heart rate and blood pressure. And until you deal with their pain, you'll never get their heart rate and blood pressure down. Step two is heart rate control. Esmolol is the ideal agent here. Your goal is a rate of 50 to 60 beats per minute. And then finally, we wanna manage the blood pressure if it hasn't already been managed by the other things that we have done. 
So that's step three is to start nicardipine or clavidipine with a target systolic blood pressure somewhere between 90 and 100 millimeters of mercury. You do have those backup options of labetalol or possibly nitroprusside, but clavidipine or nicardipine are better agents for the management here. That was, of course, Anand Swaminathan, otherwise known as EM Swami. Thank you so much, Swami. Now, Swami nicely reviewed some of the options if you don't have esmolol or nicardipine, which a lot of us in Canada do not have. Where I work, we do have esmolol, but we do not have nicardipine. And I've actually found anecdotally that substituting diltiazem for nicardipine is effective at bringing down both the heart rate and the blood pressure. I don't have hard evidence to back this up, but if you're stuck after giving esmolol or labetalol, try diltiazem 0.25 to 0.35 milligrams per kilogram over two minutes. So that's about 15 to 25 milligrams for your average adult, and then five to 10 milligrams per hour drip and titrate to your target systolic blood pressure. Hey gang, it's Jonathan Wallace from the R&R Rounds podcast, and I have a quick hit for you. Well, actually, I have two of them, so this is a quick double hit. Anyway, I've got six minutes. Let's get started. First up is the case of a four-year-old with a minor laceration over top of his upper eyelid. And it was pretty superficial. It was not gaping. I didn't really want to sedate him and suture him. So instead, I elected for glue. And I said to myself, be really careful with glue. You don't want to get it in the eye. And I don't know how many hundreds of kids I've glued over the years and how many times I've done this closer to the eye even, but somehow I managed to get a little bit of glue that leaked past my gauze and managed to get down to the lid margin. And so unfortunately I ended up gluing his eyelids about 25% of the way from the lateral canthus medially. Well done, Dr. Wallace. So if this ever happens to you or any of your friends, let me just reassure you that we do have a couple of tricks up our sleeves. A quick review of the literature shows that we can use acetone to rapidly dissolve the glue. Probably not the best idea when you're working right on the lid margin, but we can also use petroleum jelly, like a Vaseline type substance. And in this particular emergency department I was working in, we found a little sterile container. It looked a lot like your typical lubricant you use for a DRE, but it was actually petroleum. And we applied that using gauze and a Q-tip and my long-suffering nurse applied that for about five minutes and managed to dissolve it, and we got that eyelid back open. Phew! So the four-year-old was great, and so was the grandmother who had brought him in. I had offered to arrange follow-up with ophthalmology, and they graciously declined. So the plan was for them to come back within 24 hours if they had any concerns. All right, case number two. So on another day in another department, I had a 50-year-old lady come in with acute renal colic. And this was refractory to mega doses of opiates. And when we think about managing pain in renal colic, we typically think of our big three analgesics. At least I do. I'm talking about acetaminophen, I'm talking about an NSAID like Catorolac, and I'm talking about opiates. And this lady had had renal colic for a few days now. She'd seen my colleague a couple of days before, had been given a dose of oxycodone as well as tramadol. It was not working. She'd called the ambulance. She'd received 150 micrograms of fentanyl IV, and this was not touching her pain. Now, we knew this was renal colic. It was classic symptoms, and we'd had a CT scan from a day before that showed a stone that was in transit. So pretty slam dunk on the diagnosis front. The issue here was pain control. Now, pain control is kind of my thing. I mean, most doctors take the Hippocratic Oath when they start practicing. Anesthesiologists, on the other hand, take an oath to destroy and eliminate pain. 
So here I have a lady who's taken the big three. She's receiving mega doses of opiates and it's not really touching her. And this is not that uncommon in today's day and age where marijuana legalization is relatively new and we have a significant percentage of the population using it on a daily basis. Now there's no evidence I'm aware of to back me up on this, but anecdotally what my anesthesiology colleagues and I are noticing is that if someone is using marijuana on a regular basis, at least one half a gram per day, they begin to get this modification of their opiate receptors. And in fact, it may be kind of a partial antagonism type effect because people require multiple times the normal dose for opiates to achieve the same pain relief. And in fact, we may not ever achieve that same pain relief with opiates. So for this patient, I changed gears completely and I did an ESP block. That's the erector spinae plane block. It's an ultrasound guided plane block that you perform on the back while the patient's sitting up. And it works kind of like an ipsilateral epidural affecting multiple nerve roots on one side of the body. And this worked like a hot dam. Within 15 minutes, she was pain-free. We were ready for final assessment and discharge. And the ESP block, depending on the medications you use, you can stretch it out to up to 24 hours. So that's pretty significant in the fight against renal colic. For those of you out there in rural, remote, and resource-limited settings where you don't have access to comprehensive imaging and you don't have access to specialists who can perform procedures like this, I highly recommend investing in your ultrasound education. It's going to help you in so many facets. And there you have it. If you or a friend of yours ever sticks skin glue to a place where you don't want it, you can use acetone or petroleum jelly to dissolve that fairly rapidly without too much distress. And when it comes to refractory pain, think outside the box, think about nerve blocks. They're safe, they're easy to learn. It just takes a little time investment upfront. All right, we did it. We're at five minutes, 50 seconds. I'm out of here. Thank you so much, Dr. Wallace. There are all kinds of great online and in-person nerve block courses out there. Check online what's in store for you. Next up, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sarah Gray from St. Mike's in Toronto, who you probably last heard on our pair of cardiac arrest episodes. And this is going to be part of our best of U of T EM series. We chat about the what, where, when, why, and how of high flow nasal cannula in adults. I think we have some music for this somewhere. And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. I'm hoping that we can have Dr. Gray speak at the next EM Cases Summit. And in case you missed the February 2023 summit, no worries, we've got you covered. All the main stage talks, procedural videos, and panel discussions with all your fave EM Cases guest experts are available for a limited time only through emcasessummit.com. It's an easy way to get CME credits and features the very best speakers in EM. Also, all the 2021 talks are also included, as well as ebooks summarizing both the 2021 and 2023 summits. Go to emcasesummit.com to get your video streaming package. And here is my interview with Dr. Sarah Gray. There are many ways of giving patients oxygen who need it for whatever reason. Some with and some without PEEP. There's plain old nasal prongs, non-rebreather, BPAP, CPAP, supraglottic devices, endotracheal intubation, just to name a few. And the new kid on the block, or the new-ish kid on the block, is high-flow nasal cannula. High-flow nasal cannulae are all the rage these days. 
I see it used in pediatric bronchiolitis, in adult sepsis, COPD, CHF, COVID pneumonia. But it's unclear to me exactly who's likely to benefit from high-flow nasal cannula, when to pull the trigger on using it, and when we should ditch it. And so... To help clarify all these things for us, it's my pleasure to have back on the show Dr. Sarah Gray, intensive medicine and EM trained doc at St. Mike's in Toronto, who was last on EM cases, beautifully showing us how to communicate best with taking care of cardiac arrest patients. Dr. Gray, let's talk high-flow nasal cannula. Awesome, Anton. Thanks for having me back on EM cases. Great. So before we dive into you know who should get high-flow nasal cannula, let's go over what it does exactly, how it works, what's it supposed to do, what is high-flow nasal cannula? Okay, perfect. So high-flow nasal cannula are devices that deliver oxygen up your nose with much higher flows than traditional nasal prongs or a face mask. And so if you think about your traditional nasal prongs, that can give somebody roughly four to six liters per minute of oxygen. High flow nasal cannula can give 50 to 60 liters per minute of oxygen. So way higher flows than you can get with conventional oxygen therapy. And it goes in these nasal prongs in your nose, but they're actually quite soft and pliable and tend to be very comfortable for patients compared to typical nasal prongs. And when you're setting up these machines, you can heat up the oxygen, you can humidify it, which increases patient comfort further. So it's this device that's really well tolerated. Patients don't mind wearing it, but it can give them very high flows of oxygen and can deliver up to 100% FiO2. Uh, So it's great for that person who is hypoxic. All right. So that's a little bit about what it is. How about how it's supposed to work? Like before we get into you know the indications of it, besides the fact that you can deliver 50 to 60 liters per minute of oxygen, that sounds like it would be a good thing for people who need oxygen. What's the theory behind it working better than regular oxygen or BPAP or CPAP, for example? Okay, good question. So here's the thing you want to understand about the flow of oxygen. When you're, say, on nasal prongs, The patient needs to do the vast majority of the work to breathe in that oxygen and get it to the bottom of their lungs. So part of their work of breathing will be inhaling and getting the oxygen there. And if you're quite hypoxic or quite air hungry, that's actually a lot of work. And so in contrast, when you have a patient on a high flow device, you can think of this as Like the air is blasting in through their nose. The machine is doing a whole bunch of the work of pushing that flow into your lungs and often quite deep in your lungs, washing out other dead space. And so it reduces the work of breathing that the patient needs to do and make sure all of that, you know, high oxygen is getting where it needs to be. Fantastic. So what it's supposed to do is decrease work of breathing You're getting more oxygen down into the lungs. It seems to me that it's doing kind of what CPAP or BPAP would be doing without all the horrible discomfort and other potential complications of CPAP and BiPAP. Is that about right? Yeah. So they're sort of subtly different, right? So when you compare high-flow nasal cannula to nasal prongs or face mask, certainly you can deliver a higher FiO2 
because you can truly get up to 100%, which you can't really do even with a non-rebreather or nasal prongs. And two, you get that high flow impact, which does have an effect on work of breathing. So that's where high flow nasal cannula is better than conventional oxygen therapy. When you're comparing it to CPAP and BiPAP, again, there are subtle differences there. On a CPAP or BiPAP machine, you can get in 100% oxygen. BiPAP is probably, and even CPAP is probably better if you need help with work of breathing, like because you can put a driving pressure behind it, you can put PEEP behind it, but many people don't tolerate it or they're vomiting or their level of consciousness is low or they need to eat. Like there are so many times where patients can't tolerate BiPAP and the face masks that come along with that. And that's where high flow has really filled a niche that we didn't have an option in before. So that segues very nicely into which patients are ideal for high-flow nasal cannula or when is high-flow nasal cannula ideal? <laughs> yeah, good question. So at the very top of the list of indications is your patient who is acutely hypoxic with their respiratory failure. And there's good data on this that if your patient's primary respiratory problem is hypoxia, as opposed to the hypercarbic patient. But if they're hypoxic, then high-flow nasal cannula is your go-to device. And this has translated over even to sepsis. Like currently, their surviving sepsis guidelines recommend high-flow nasal cannula over non-invasive ventilation for septic patients because so many of those patients have pneumonia and have primary hypoxia as their indication. So the hypoxic patient is the slam dunk indication here. I'm also seeing it used a lot more for pre-intubation oxygenation, especially in the person where maybe you're doing a delayed sequence. Rather than doing that with a BiPAP mask, uh, you can do it with high-flow nasal cannula. And then it's just great for the people who, for whatever reason, can't tolerate that tight face mask for BiPAP. So that's the patient who's vomiting. It's the patient with a ton of secretions. It's the patient with claustrophobia. Sometimes that's even the patient who is going to need to be on oxygen therapy for days and they need to eat. Uh, high-flow nasal cannula gives them a way to do that that you can't really do with the BiPAP mask. Got it. So there's lots of patients that would be ideal for high-flow, the acute hypoxic respiratory failure, patients who are vomiting, won't be able to tolerate uh, CPAP or BPAP, for sepsis especially. So those are some of the patients that it would be ideal for it's important to understand which patients are likely to fail high-flow nasal cannula uh, before we just jump in. So can you tell us a little bit about which patients high-flow nasal cannula will probably end up not working? Yes. And so these fall into a few big categories. If your patient has COPD or congestive heart failure, there is still good mortality data that non-invasive is probably the best choice for those people. So some version of bi-level positive pressure ventilation, because you can put in that positive pressure that helps increase their tidal volume, that helps decrease their work of breathing. So COPD and CHF, I am still reaching for BiPAP. And then you also just in general want to be thinking about people who are super sick. If my patient's in cardiac arrest, I'm probably not putting on high-flow nasal cannula. I'm thinking about intubating and definitive control of that airway. Uh, similarly, people with, you know, if you do an Apache score or a SOFA score, but those, you know, people who are rock star sick, multiple comorbidities, clearly going to the ICU, 
High flow might help you temporize, but it's probably not the long-term solution you're looking for. They're probably going to need intubation. So when I'm thinking about high flow, I'm thinking this person is in my eMERGE. They're hypoxic, but they're probably going to be able to go to the ward. Let's see how they do on high flow and observe them for a little while. Great. And is there data suggesting that you're avoiding ICU admissions with high flow? (sighs) So this is a great question. I would say not clearly. And here's the thing in this literature, Anton. One, high flow nasal cannula are relatively new. So we still have a fairly immature body of literature here that we're trying to understand. The second confounder in this literature is that not all respiratory failure is the same. So there are a variety of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, but they're comparing pneumonia and COVID and a bit of CHF in there and maybe some straight-up urosepsis or other things. And we come out with these mixed results that become quite hard to interpret. So I think the data is not clear yet. In some populations and some studies, yes, we've avoided ICU. Uh, I don't know that we can say that on a global sense yet for all hypoxic patients. I want to talk a little bit about the initial settings and how to adjust those settings through the patient's time in the emergency department. So I have the luxury of just asking my respiratory therapist to do all of this, but I think it's important uh, for those of us who don't have a respiratory therapist at hand, and it's just good to understand what can be adjusted if your patient isn't doing well and your respiratory therapist is not available. Yes. And Anton, I want to reassure you, or maybe the audience out there, this is an easy, easy, easy machine to use. There are only two settings you need to dial in. So this is not complicated the way a ventilator might be. There is no need to be afraid of these machines. You are really only setting the FiO2 and the flow rate. So let's start with the FiO2 or the oxygen that you're delivering. You're really just dialing that up the same way you would nasal prongs or a face mask to achieve whatever set you're targeting. Typically, I'm targeting somewhere between 92 and 96% for most patients. So I put on the high-flow nasal cannula on the patient, and I start by turning up the oxygen until I see the sat I want. This happens in a few seconds at the bedside. The second thing you set is the flow, which is how fast that air is blasting in at the patient. And I usually start somewhere in the middle of the setting range. So I'll typically start at 30 liters per minute. And what you're looking at with flow is, is their air hunger getting better? Are they more comfortable at the bedside? Is their respiratory rate coming down? Is their work of breathing coming down? Is their accessory muscle use coming down? So you're titrating the flow to wherever they feel comfortable. If 30 doesn't seem to be enough, then I'm usually going up in increments of 10 liters per minute. So I'll go to 40 next and try them there for a minute, see how they feel. If not, go up to 50. Try them there, see how they feel. But really, you only have to set oxygen and flow, which makes this a super easy machine to titrate at the bedside. Fantastic. I love that. Only two things to remember, FiO2 and flow. Beautiful. Now, some patients... You put on high flow and they do well and everyone's happy and you pat yourself on the back and you go on to your next patient. Other patients, you're not sure whether you might need to escalate to endotracheal intubation, whether you know most patients that you're putting on high flow decided not to put them on BPAP or CPAP for a particular reason, like they're vomiting. 
Sometimes I find it difficult to know exactly when to ditch the high flow nasal cannula and move on to endotracheal intubation or whichever. Could you tell us a little bit about when high flow nasal cannula should be stopped and you should move on to something else? Yes, absolutely. So say you start your patient on high flow nasal cannula and they're at max settings, right? So that's maybe the sickest patient you might want to look at for high flow nasal cannula. You put them on and then you're going to do your usual stuff. For me, this is getting a chest x-ray. Maybe I'm starting some antibiotics. Maybe I'm doing a gas. But I'm going to reassess that patient usually in an hour or two to see how they're doing. And what I want to see is them either being the same or marginally better. And by that, I am looking specifically at their respiratory rate, at their oxygen saturation, at their work of breathing. And often I might do a repeat venous gas if I'm quite worried about them. And so those are the things I'm just sort of looking clinically from the end of the bed to see how they're doing. If your patient is deteriorating, then you want to think about what is my long-term plan here? This patient may come to need endotracheal intubation. And even if they're subtly deteriorating at the two-hour mark, that really increases my threshold for this patient needing ICU and maybe intubation because we expect them to see at least stability, if not improvement in those first couple hours. There are also scores you can use here, Anton. And the most common one that people are using that has been validated in the literature is the ROCKS index. I find, at least for me when I'm doing this, I get the numbers at the bedside and then I go to whatever my friendly online calculator is and I plug the numbers in to spit out a score. But the ROCKS index, you need to collect the SAT of the patient, the oxygen saturation, the FiO2 and their respiratory rate. And then you plug those into the calculator, it spits you out the number and numbers for your ROCKS index over five are really reassuring. If your patient has a ROCKS index over five, you can feel pretty comfortable that they are not going to need ICU, whereas lower numbers are a bit more concerning and there are ranges for those depending on what time you've sent the number. But this is a really well-validated index if you want a number to track And particularly if the patient's been in your emergency department for some time, you can do this on a serial basis to give you a fairly subtle quantitative indicator of whether your patient is getting better or worse. Excellent. So just to review there, it's the SAT ratio to FiO2 divided by the respiratory rate. That's the ROCKS index, which is R-O-X, not (laughs) R-O-C-K-S, which of course is... Uh, the first word that comes to mind when you say rocks, and that a rocks index of over five is a pretty good indication that they will not need an ICU bed. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, any other words of wisdom when it comes to high flow nasal cannula? Any uh, take home messages you'd like our listeners to to go home with? I would just flag for the listeners that while BiPAP or non invasive has been the you know, medical standard of care for COPD and CHF, there are studies coming down the pipeline looking at high-flow nasal cannula in hypercarbic respiratory failure. And some of those studies, and in fact, a recent systematic review show that high-flow nasal cannula was not inferior to non-invasive. So we don't know yet. I'm flagging this for sort of future attention, 
But it may be that high-flow nasal cannula becomes our standard for COPD uh, in the next few years. So stay tuned to watch that literature. Ah, So suffice to say that in the patient who is not tolerating BPAP very well, who's COPD and who's retaining like crazy, high-flow would be an excellent choice at this point. Yes, exactly. And so it's my go-to. If I have a patient where I'm going to put them on non-invasive, but for whatever reason, they aren't tolerating it, I will switch them to high-flow nasal cannula to give it a try. It is successful in a good chunk of those patients. Excellent. So stay tuned for some more data on high-flow nasal cannula. Dr. Grade predicts that perhaps it might become the standard of care for COPD and CHF, which is a huge proportion of the really sick RESP patients that we see. Thanks so much for your insights, Dr. Gray. Hope to have you back on EM Cases soon. Thanks so much for having me, Anton. It was a pleasure. This episode is also supported by BetterHelp. Now, getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially when we're always growing and changing. Self-awareness and self-insight are game-changers. When one of my best friends committed suicide at the age of 35 many years ago, it hit me really hard. I needed therapy, but came out of it a new person, making the best of every day and paying more attention to my mental health. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. The therapy I did when my friend committed suicide was fantastic. It really helped me learn some key coping strategies and empowered me to be the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash emcases today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash emcases. Next up, we have the wonderful Maria Ivankovic from Toronto, who's going to give us a quick hit on the duration of antibiotic therapy. Now, I remember the days when we gave seven days of antibiotics for simple UTIs, 10 days of antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia, even two weeks of antibiotics for cellulitis sometimes. How long should we be giving antibiotics for and why? For many years, we have been counseling patients on how important it is to complete their full course of antibiotics which was often one or even two weeks long. For many of us, the idea that you always have to finish your entire course of antibiotics is deeply embedded. This is because we worried that shorter treatment would promote the growth of drug-resistant bacteria. We are now learning that the opposite is true. So shorter courses appear to be associated with less resistance. This is a real paradigm shift in antibiotic prescribing with the newish mantra, that shorter is better. So how is it that shorter courses are associated with less resistance? The longer the course of antibiotics, the greater the pressure to select for antibiotic-resistant strains. The concept of finishing the entire antibiotic course or the idea of treating beyond symptom resolution may make sense for the minority of infections where we are trying to fully eradicate the offending bacteria from the body, like TB, for example, but it doesn't really make sense for the most common infections we treat that are caused by normal body flora, 
like most skin infections, community-acquired pneumonia, and UTIs, for example. In these cases, the bacteria that we are targeting are still expected to stick around after our symptoms get better, and eradication was never the goal. By getting rid of more of the bacteria that are susceptible to the antibiotics, you're giving any other antibiotic-resistant bacteria the opportunity to multiply, and you're actually driving resistance. You're also overkilling the body's natural flora and increasing risk of things like yeast infections and C. difficile infections. Each extra day of antibiotics is associated with a 5% increase in the odds of a patient having an antibiotic-associated adverse event. So shorter courses are associated with both less resistance and less adverse events. But a big question is, are they as effective as our traditional longer horses? Well, to start, the traditional 7 to 14 or even 21-day courses are not actually based on any great evidence and seem to arbitrarily match the number of days in a week. There is, however, a growing body of evidence to support shorter course antibiotics. This has led to guideline changes in recent years for many commonly treated infections, such as five days for uncomplicated acute otitis media in kids over the age of two, five days of treatment for uncomplicated cellulitis, and five days for community-acquired pneumonia in adults and children over six months. There are even more recent studies looking at just three days of antibiotics for pneumonia, and although this might not hit mainstream just yet, it is certainly indicative of where things are headed. It's also worth mentioning that we have moved away from antibiotics altogether for most adults with strep pharyngitis or uncomplicated diverticulitis. Last year, the Canadian Association of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease or AMI for short, release practice recommendations on the duration of antibiotic therapy for common infections. You can find the link in the podcast notes. So why is this shift to shorter courses so important? Antimicrobial resistance has now become one of the leading causes of death worldwide, and some sources estimate it could kill 10 million people per year by 2050. That's more people than from cancer. The WHO has declared that antimicrobial resistance is one of the top 10 global public health threats facing humanity. And they state that misuse and overuse of antimicrobials are the main drivers in the development of drug-resistant pathogens. When we talk about overuse, of course, we were also talking about unnecessarily long durations of antibiotics. We have a really important opportunity and responsibility as clinicians to do what we can to reduce use. So to summarize, For many infections we commonly treat, shorter courses of antibiotics are as effective as longer, shorter courses are associated with less adverse effects and less resistance. So next time you write that prescription for cephalexin or amoxicillin, choose your duration wisely. Thanks so much, Dr. Ivankovic. That is a huge game changer and it's so simple. It could really have a huge impact on our patients. Next up, as part of our QI Corner series, we have Dr. Tahara Bate, who's going to give us a case where she discusses one of the biggest high-risk moments in emergency medicine in a given shift, and that is the handover. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us on another great edition of QI Corner. Today, we're going to go on a little field trip, leaving the familiar environment of our mid-sized community ED, the beloved Janus General, and we're going to take a field trip into the city to a large tertiary academic hospital. And why does this matter? 
it's because our case today is going to involve learners. Now, second only to the remember that patient you saw in terms of anxiety and terror provoking is the closely related, know that handover you gave me? So with that in mind, let's get to our case. It's about one in the morning and you're 90 minutes-ish past the end of your shift. The volume's been insane as usual and you're completely bed blocked. Lots of hallway medicine, examining patients in chairs, you know the drill. You and your first-year resident start tidying up your list for handover. On it is an 85-year-old female who presented from home with general malaise and some GI symptoms. You laid eyes, but that's about it, as she's just on a chair in the fast-track area. As per the resident, symptoms have been present around 24 to 36 hours. Generally some mild nausea and vomiting, along with a mild fever, weakness, and some decreased PO intake. Also some complaints of some non-specific knee pain. Not much to find on exam according to the resident. She's got a mildly tender but not peritonitic abdomen. Past history is relatively unremarkable, except for some previous complicated diverticulitis. She also has some hypertension, mild CKD, OA, and OAB. She's been afebrile in the ED and hemodynamically stable. Her blood work is notable for hyponatremia, moderate AKI, and a mild leukocytosis. CT abdo still pending. You hand over to your colleague to follow up on the CT and suggest that if there's nothing surgical, you should still probably get medicine to see to admit, given her biochemical abnormalities and general frailty. She's also having some difficulty ambulating, failed a walk test in the department. You do some feedback for your resident, tidy up your notes, and head home. Your colleague, meanwhile, keeps getting called by the nurse for analgesics, even after the patient got Tylenol and Advil. CT results are still pending, so the new doctor goes to reassess the patient. And in speaking with them, it turns out that this patient actually came to the ED because of this worsening right knee pain, which on history was atraumatic and started a day before the rest of the symptoms. And the difficulty ambulating was not actually due to general weakness, as you'd assumed, but rather this knee pain. When your colleague tries to assess this patient, they realize that they can't see anything because this very proper elderly lady is still dressed in her wool trousers and sweater. Now, after some back and forth, uh, they manage to snag a bed, and when they examine her properly, she has a highly suspicious, hot, swollen knee, which the tap ultimately reveals to be a septic arthritis. Patients admitted for a washout of her native joint and prolonged IV antibiotics for bacteremia, but ultimately does well. So, you missed a septic arthritis. But the question, as always, is why? So let's break pattern and talk about the system piece first. In our current practice environment, there is often not enough space and not enough privacy to examine patients properly. And this puts all of us at risk for a misdiagnosis like this. Full stop. Now, some of you may be saying to yourself, well, this wouldn't happen to me. I would never not examine that patient's knee. But what about if it wasn't clear that the knee pain was the chief complaint? What about if looking at the patient factors, you were seeing an elderly patient who was a vague historian endorsing all sorts of vague symptomatology with unclear timelines? And the only reason that this knee pain really came out on history was because the patient's daughter had arrived to give collateral to the second ED physician. So you add the patient factors into the current risk-laden environment 
And this starts to become a plausible scenario. But what this case really turned on was the involvement of the learner. In this case, the learner was an off-service PGY1 resident only a few months into their training. And when the case notes were reviewed, the resident had noted focal knee pain on history. In fact, the resident had actually included septic arthritis on their differential, given the presenting symptoms of knee pain and fever. When follow-up was done, however, a knowledge gap was uncovered in that this resident, who again was off-service, was not familiar with the implications and appropriate management of septic arthritis. They'd assumed medicine would just arrange a joint aspiration in the morning, and therefore septic arthritis wasn't emphasized when they presented the case. And crucially, without that framing, the supervising physician only eyeballed the patient and never really assessed them personally. Now, unless the preceptor retook the entire history, it's not clear whether or not the case trajectory would have changed, especially without that collateral. But it also isn't implausible that it may have. So at the end of the day, what are our takeaways from this case? Number one is it's just a good reminder to not shortcut your physical exam. Don't examine a knee through the pants. Expose the atypical chest pain so you don't miss the shingles rash. Common sense stuff, but so easy to overlook when there's no private spaces and we're drowning in volume. But it's these shortcuts that can increase our medical legal risk substantially. Consider adding a note to your chart if you're seeing patients in these less than ideal areas. So if there are any issues, you can not only point to having the patient consent to see them in a non-private space, but also that your care is the best that it can be under the circumstances, which is the standard. Number two is understand the expectations when supervising learners. Your level of oversight is and should be different for a med student compared to a junior resident compared to a senior resident, but it should also be tailored to the strength of each individual learner. You know, many physicians have general approaches to working with learners that they feel comfortable with, such as always examining the abdomen or doing the discharge themselves. Your department or institution likely has some guidelines to help you determine the right amount of supervision, especially if you're junior faculty and just getting used to working with learners. It's worth a look. And finally, number three, be wary of putting your handovers on autopilot. The medical legal risk of handovers could spend dozens of these episodes, and this was actually an example of where a handover went well, because the receiving doc had enough information to know that something didn't add up. But it's easy to see how this could have gone a different way if you hadn't reassessed the patient and only ordered more meds. Now, instead of this patient, think about the abdominal pain patient who's been waiting surgical consult for a few hours who now has escalating analgesic needs. Maybe they perfed. It's those types of stories that are why you should consider having a low threshold for reassessing your handover patients, even if the nursing requests seem innocuous, like more analgesia. At the end of the day, the miss was caught, the patient was treated appropriately, and while the first physician might have been tempted to berate themselves for it, this is another clear example of how the system, patient, and provider factors can come together in this perfect storm. So until next time, keep thinking about that system and remember, a mistake is never just a mistake.
Thank you so much, Dr. Bate. You know, handover and deciding on the degree of learning oversight are two really important things to think about and decide what works best for you. Whether you're using the SBAR handover tool, you know, situation, background, assessment, recommendation, and repeat back, or whether your group has some kind of standardized handover process, I think it's a good idea for everyone in your group to be on the same page when it comes to what to expect from handovers so that bad stuff isn't missed. And I personally find figuring out the degree of learner oversight an ongoing challenge because on the one hand, I want to give them as much autonomy as possible so that they can make their own decisions and learn from them. And then on the other hand, I want to make sure that they aren't missing anything. It's always a challenge. If you have any ideas about learner oversight or handover, please put your comments at the bottom of the show notes for this quick hit episode. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Next up, we have Kirsten DeWitt, ED doc and researcher who also works in a thrombosis clinic, our go-to PE expert from Kingston, Ontario. She's also a regular speaker at the EM Cases Summit, and she's going to talk about PE testing strategies, and in particular, she's going to give us some interesting tidbits about years, age-adjusted D-dimer, and the new kid on the block, Adjust Unlikely, which uses the criterion PE most likely or not to decide whether or not to then use an age-adjusted D-dimer. We have a case of a 34-year-old lady. She's previously healthy and takes no medications, and she's come to the emergency department because she has new difficulty breathing. Her only risk for pulmonary embolism is that five weeks ago, she had COVID and she was laid up at home for a week. You're wondering how best to test her for pulmonary embolism. You'd like to do a D-dimer, but you're not quite sure how to interpret the D-dimer. Which threshold should you use? Well, we recently published a study in Annals of Emergency Medicine, which evaluated the diagnostic accuracy of both years and a new PE testing strategy called Adjust Unlikely. So what did we find? Well, for years, we found that the sensitivity was 93%. And that means that years missed the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism in 7% of all PE cases. A couple of those cases were actually confined only to the subsegmental vessels, but eight of the 10 missed cases were, were larger than that. We found that years was pretty specific and it was very efficient at reducing the proportion of patients who needed a CT scan. We also looked at a new pulmonary embolism testing strategy called Adjust Unlikely. Adjust Unlikely has taken the well score item, pulmonary embolism, the most likely diagnosis or not, and used that to determine whether you can age adjust the D-dimer or you can rule out pulmonary embolism with a standard cutoff of 500 with the D-dimer. 
So if pulmonary embolism is the most likely diagnosis, then you can exclude PE with a D-dimer threshold of 500. And if pulmonary embolism is not the most likely diagnosis, then you can age adjust the D-dimer for people who are over the age of 50. So how did the age-adjusted D-dimer perform? Age-adjusted D-dimer was 100% sensitive, so it missed no case of pulmonary embolism. Age-adjusted D-dimer wasn't quite as specific as years, so although it reduced the number of CT scans compared to using just that standard cutoff of 500 as D-dimer, it wasn't as efficient as years. So what does this mean? Which one should we use? Well, does it really matter if we miss 7% of all cases of pulmonary embolism? Over the course of our entire careers, that might only work into two or three cases of PE. Would it matter if those patients survive for three months and they have no further symptoms? Well, I would argue that it does matter. So people who've had unprovoked pulmonary embolism, regardless of the size of the blood clot, are often advised to remain on long-term anticoagulation to prevent a secondary thrombosis. When we look at men with either unprovoked PE or minimally provoked PE, amongst those men who stop anticoagulation, they have a 30% risk of developing recurrent venous thromboembolism within the next five years. So we recommend that they stay on anticoagulation to prevent that recurrent event. So if you miss the diagnosis at the index visit, then the patient doesn't have that opportunity to start or continue anticoagulation, and they have a reasonable risk of going on to have a recurrent event. And we don't know if that recurrent event could be a sizable burden pulmonary embolism with the associated morbidity or potentially be a fatal case. So I think on balance, it's probably better to diagnose pulmonary embolism when it's there because that gives the patient a fair chance to consider remaining on anticoagulation. Does it matter if you use years or use age-adjusted D-dimer or you might even consider looking at adjust unlikely? Well, I think it's up to you and it's very reasonable to use any of these options. As far as adjust unlikely goes, my next plan is that we're going to do a big cohort validation study across multiple sites in Canada, and that would show the safety once again for adjusted unlikely, and we would do the same 90-day follow-up looking at the failure rate. And it would also document more formally the efficiency of adjust unlikely. So watch this space. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. Here's the quick review. Hope you learned a little bit about the ED management of aortic dissection. There is a three-pronged approach. First, pain control, then heart rate control, then blood pressure control. So lead with fentanyl for analgesia. Then esmolol is the first line of medication for heart rate control if you have it. If not, you can use labetalol for both heart rate and blood pressure. If you've used esmolol, then you move to nicardipine or clavidipine for blood pressure control. If you don't have nicardipine or clavidipine, you can try nitroprusside, but watch out for reflex tachycardia. And if libidolol and nitroprusside aren't working, you can always try diltiazem. In the rural quick hit, Dr. Wallace went over some tricks to get off skin glue that might spill into unwanted areas like the eye. You can use petroleum jelly or acetone. The other thing Dr. Wallace and his anesthesia colleagues have noticed is that regular cannabis users tend not to respond to opioids very well, and that an ultrasound-guided ESP block 
can be great for renal colic when you're stuck. With Sarah Gray, we had a nice long talk about high-flow nasal cannulae, which patients that HFNC are ideal for, which patients who are likely to fail, a bit about the ROCS index. Remember, a ROCS index of more than five means no ICU necessary. Initial high-flow settings with flows of 30 liters per minute and then titrate by 10 liters per minute at a time. And finally, indications for ditching the high flow and going for intubation. Next, we had Maria Vankovic rant about the fact that for uncomplicated things like cystitis, cellulitis, and pneumonia, we generally give antibiotics for way too long of a course, and that is contributing to more side effects and more antibiotic resistance. So use shorter courses for those uncomplicated, simple infections. On QI Corner, Tahara Bate talked about handover and learning oversight in that great septic arthritis case. And Kirsten DeWitt introduced the Adjust Unlikely tool for deciding who needs a D-dimer for PE. In the next episode, we're going to talk about three red flag headaches that are sometimes really tough to diagnose. We're going to pick up from where we left off from the red flag headaches episode that we did a couple of years ago with Roy Baskind and Amit Shaw. And we're going to talk about first cerebral venous thrombosis, then IIH, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and finally giant cell arteritis. These are things we miss all the time in the eMERGE that if we learn a little bit more about, we're more likely to pick up. So until next time, take it easy. 